Good morning. We are continuing our five-part sermon series entitled Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. We're doing a five-part sermon series on the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the idea to do a series, a five-part series in this way, really comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which, as I mentioned last week, may have been a hymn of the early church. The Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the verses we read in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but scholars believe that these verses were recited by the church as a hymn, as part of their corporate worship. We don't know that with certainty, but a lot of people believe that. It would not be surprising if that were so. Again, listen to the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So here in these verses, we see the elements that I've mentioned before, the, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We see how these things are central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding these things, believing these things, is central to who we are as followers of Christ. And this morning, we are considering the life of Jesus Obviously, one sermon on the life of Jesus can barely scratch the surface of the glorious riches that come from studying his life. But I hope we can get a sense of his purpose in life and what he accomplished. I hope we can know him a little better and have a better idea of what it means to follow him. Also, I hope the sermon whets your appetite to study the Gospels in greater depth. Most of all, I hope the sermon this morning serves to grow us as true worshipers who worship Jesus as he has revealed himself rather than who we think he ought to be. As we consider the life of Jesus, we need to acknowledge that we don't know many details about his first 30 or so years, but we do know some. We know that he was born in Bethlehem, his mother was Mary, and his adoptive father was Joseph. Joseph was of the lineage of King David. He was a carpenter by trade. His parents presented him at the temple at a young age, which was accompanied by extraordinary events involving a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. When Jesus was very young, his parents fled to Egypt to escape King Herod. After Herod died, when Jesus was still young, his family returned to the land of Israel and settled in the city of Nazareth, where Jesus did most of his growing up. We see in the Gospels that Jesus did have brothers and sisters as Joseph and Mary had other children after the miraculous birth of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke provides one significant event in the life of Jesus when he was 12 years old, which we read about in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. I'm going to read those verses now. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. And here's what took place 
in the life of young Jesus. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to a custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So that's the glimpse we are given. That's the picture we are given of Jesus at the age of 12. And that's the most we're given in regards to the child Jesus. Obviously, we see important and significant things there in this passage. We see an awareness of who he was and his role in his time on earth, even at the age of 12. But that summarizes most of what we know about the first 30 or so years of the life of Jesus. Scholars estimate that Jesus died between the age of 33 and 36, and his public ministry lasted about three and a half years before he was crucified. Most of what we know about Jesus comes from those three to three and a half years of public ministry. One thing I want to call attention to before we get into the life of Jesus is the reliability of the gospel accounts. When we study the life of Jesus, we rely on the four gospel accounts written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We rely on them to learn about Jesus, but are they reliable? Are they reliable in the sense that they record for us what truly happened? Do they record for us what truly happened in the life of Jesus? Do they faithfully record what he taught, what he did, how people responded to him? Can we trust that they are providing us a reliable historical count of the life of Jesus? One book I have found very helpful in answering this question is called, Can We Trust the Gospels? by a brilliant scholar named Peter J. Williams, who earned his PhD from Cambridge. And in his book, he examines a variety of compelling evidence supporting the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts. I would commend this book to you. It is a very interesting, fascinating, and edifying read. Can we trust the gospels? At the end of his book, he writes, Returning to the title of the book, Can We Trust the Gospels? I would argue that it is rational to do so. Trusting both the message and the history of the Gospels provides a satisfying choice, both intellectually and in wider ways. Trusting the Gospels has explanatory power, historically and literarily. But if the Gospels' presentation is correct in characterizing humans as opposed to God and sinful, the Gospels also provide the answer to these problems in the record of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of the remarkable person of Jesus Christ. 
One of the things he points out in his book is the information we have about Jesus from non-Christian sources. The sources he cites include Cornelius Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and Flavius Josephus. Williams demonstrates that there are numerous details we know about the life of Jesus apart from the four Gospels. In his book, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus, historian John Dixon makes a similar point. In addition to the sources cited by Williams, he references works by the pagan historian Thalos, the Stoic writer uh, Mara Bar Serapian, and the Roman historian Suetonius, among others. And this is what John Dixon writes. He says, it is worth listing the handful of details about Jesus we can glean from non-Christian sources without, evening, without even opening a Christian text. Listen to this, the details he records that we can know about Jesus from non-Christian sources. The name Jesus, the place and time frame of his public ministry, Galilee and Judea during Pontius Pilate's governorship. The name of his mother, Mary, the ambiguous nature of his birth, the name of one of his brothers, James, his fame as a teacher, his fame as a miracle worker or sorcerer, depending on who you ask. The attribution, uh, the attribution to him of the title Messiah Christ, his kingly status in the eyes of some, the time and manner of his execution, crucifixion around the Passover festival, the involvement of both the Roman and Jewish leadership in his death, the coincidence of an eclipse at the time of his crucifixion, the report of Jesus' appearances to his followers after his death, the flourishing of a movement that worshiped Jesus after his death. Isn't that interesting? All these things we can learn about Jesus from non-Christian sources. And do you notice all of these details we can learn about Jesus do not contradict what we learn about him from the Gospels. Rather, they confirm particular details we learn about Jesus from the Gospels. I bring this up to strengthen our confidence in the reliability of the accounts provided by the gospel writers. We see countless reasons to believe that what they have provided for us are historically reliable accounts of Jesus Christ. Now, all the evidence in the world does not change the fact that we need faith to be Christians. <laughs> we need faith. We need God to give us faith to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in him, to take him at his word. We need God to grant us faith and strengthen our faith. Nevertheless, it's good to know. It's good to know these things. It's good to see and understand the reasons why we believe that we can trust what we read in the Gospels. With that in mind, we are going to read Matthew chapter 11. We are going to read Matthew chapter 11 to learn things about the life of Jesus, and we are also going to consider other texts as well. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 11, and I encourage you to follow along. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, 
Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who, hear, uh, who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are labor and, heavy, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, the first thing we see in chapter 11 is the continued emphasis on teaching and preaching. Jesus was a teacher. Again, in verse 1, we read, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Jesus provided instruction specifically for his disciples. The fact that he had a group of disciples was an important part of his role as a teacher. He invested a tremendous amount of time and energy teaching or discipling the 12 disciples who became apostles. 
He also taught other men and women in more private settings. He spent a lot of time teaching his disciples so they would, in turn, go and teach others. After Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to his disciples, and he gave them what we refer to as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus said to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus taught his disciples extensively and commissioned them to go and make disciples of others, bringing the gospel to bear seeing new believers baptized, and then teaching them to observe or obey what Christ commanded. And so we see how teaching was central in the ministry of Jesus. Teaching was central, and he commissioned his followers to go and also teach others. He taught so that his teaching would spread. We also see in verse 1 that Jesus preached and taught in a more, in, um, a more public fashion in their cities. In the Gospels, we see that the public preaching and teaching played a significant role in the life and ministry of Jesus. But what kind of teacher was Jesus? What exactly did he teach? What was the goal of his teaching? We saw last week that many people in the U.S., including some who identify as evangelical Christians, affirm the statement that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. But when we see the unique authority Jesus claimed as a teacher, when we study his teachings, and when we see his aim as a teacher, it does not make sense to affirm that he was a good teacher, but not God. In the Gospel of Mark, we read about the beginning of his public ministry. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He began his public ministry by preaching, and in Mark 1.38, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Preaching and teaching was central to the ministry of Jesus. And going back to Mark 1.15, we read that he began his public ministry by preaching, specifically by proclaiming the gospel of God. In proclaiming the gospel of God, Jesus made a startling claim. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus declared that his arrival marked a pivotal time in the history of the world. With his arrival, the kingdom of God had broken into this world. James Edwards writes, The kingdom of God takes its initial shape from Israel's concept of God as king. As creator of the world, God is exalted above his creatures, rules in majestic splendor, mocks gods of wood and stone, and brings kingdoms to naught. The reign of God was initially manifested in Israel's history, in the exodus from Egypt, in the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. But it would be supremely manifested in the advent of a future Messiah, 
whose reign would usher in the eternal and heavenly reign of God. Again, Jesus claimed that with his arrival, the time had come. He was the Messiah to usher in the eternal and heavenly reign of God. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, we read about a conversation Jesus had with Pharisees after Jesus had cast out an evil spirit. And Jesus said, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When Jesus taught, he claimed to have unique authority to usher in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the central theme of his teaching. He claimed to be far more than a good teacher. He claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed and chosen king. As the king, he had the unique ability to reveal the nature of the kingdom. And he spoke a great deal about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. When you read through the Gospels, you will see Jesus use this phrase time and time again. You will see him speak of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And I want to encourage you when you read through the Gospels and you see him use these phrases, ask yourself, what is he revealing? What is he revealing about the kingdom of God? What is he trying to impress upon us about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? What does he want us to understand, to believe? What was his aim in proclaiming the gospel of God and teaching on the kingdom of God? Again, we see his aim right there at the beginning of his ministry. He called people to repent and believe the gospel. His aim was clear, unambiguous. He had a purpose in teaching. His teaching was not merely to enlighten, but to call people to repent of their sins and to believe in him. Jesus didn't teach in a take-it-or-leave-it kind of way. His Sermon on the Mount, which we read about in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, is one of his most famous bodies of teaching. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught as one who had authority. He taught them, you have heard these things, but I tell you this. He did not appeal to others to prove his point. He appealed to himself, his own authority. He taught authoritatively and definitively. He said, what I tell you is the truth because I am telling it to you. He did not teach simply to help us live a better life. 
He did not teach merely to provide a series of wise sayings. He did not teach merely to enlighten. No, he taught with authority. He taught with the authority of the king, revealing the nature of the kingdom with the aim of calling people to repentance of sin and faith in him so that we might enter his kingdom. Jesus' teachings are not good if he is not who he says he is. If he is not the Messiah, God's anointed and chosen king, if he is not the one in whom we are to put our trust and faith, then his teaching is not good because he has deceived. Jesus was indeed a good teacher. But he was more than merely a good teacher. He taught with authority, with unique authority. He taught with the authority of God's chosen king, revealing the nature of the kingdom, calling sinners to repent and trust in him. In the life of Jesus, we also see miraculous deeds. And as we study the life of Jesus, we see the significance of the miracles he performed. When John the Baptist was in prison, he heard news and received reports about Jesus. He wanted confirmation that Jesus was the one they had been waiting for. John had made profound statements about Jesus, but maybe his faith was wavering. Maybe he was having some doubts. Maybe he was second-guessing the things that he had said about Jesus, the things that he had believed about Jesus. So he sent word to Jesus to say, hey, are you really the one? Did I get this wrong? And Jesus answered his question by saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus performed many wonderful, miraculous deeds. He healed many people. In so doing, he revealed that he is the one, that he is the Messiah. As he said to John here, his miraculous deeds revealed something about him, that he is, in fact, the one. And his miraculous deeds also reveal the ushering in of the kingdom of God. He is the one who can reverse sin's curse. He is the one who has the power to reverse sin's curse and all the effects of sin. And in his miraculous deeds, he gives us wonderful glimpses of God's kingdom. Jesus healed sickness because in God's kingdom there will be no sickness. Jesus restored those who were broken. He restored wholeness because in God's kingdom all will be made whole. Jesus raised the dead because in God's kingdom there will be no death. Jesus demonstrated his power to reverse the effects of sin's curse. He gave us wonderful pictures, glimpses of God's kingdom through his miraculous deeds. He demonstrated his power, his divine authority in numerous ways on numerous occasions so that we would believe in him, put our hope in him, and look forward to our life with him in his kingdom for all of eternity. 
One of his miraculous deeds was when he walked on water. And I love what we read in response to this deed. In Matthew 14, we read, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Witnessing his miraculous deeds led to worship. Trusting in him for who he is, who he has revealed himself to be. And brothers and sisters, that is the right response. We are to respond to what he has done, his miraculous deeds, through worshiping him for who he is as he has revealed himself to us. Another thing we see in the life of Jesus is that he was a friend of sinners. Jesus faced a lot of opposition and criticism in his life. And one of the things he was criticized for was that he was a friend of sinners. Again, in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, Jesus said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. For some of the religious leaders, this behavior was scandalous. How could Jesus befriend common sinners and even outcasts? How could he enjoy table fellowship with people who did not observe the religious rituals and were ceremonially unclean? If he were truly sent by God, they thought, surely he would not spend time with such people. When Jesus quoted his opponents in Matthew eleven nineteen, he may have been referring to an event that is recorded in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, verses 15 and 7, through 17, we read, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners drew near to Jesus. Sinners felt welcomed by Jesus. Sinners were well-received and befriended by Jesus. It's interesting when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because who among those, that crowd, the tax collectors and the Pharisees, who were the sinners? Well, they all were sinners. Some recognized it, and some did not. Some knew they were sinners and some thought they were righteous. Those who believed themselves to be righteous were not as excited to spend time with Jesus. They were not as encouraged by his presence. But those who recognized they were sinners drew near. They sought him out. They enjoyed friendship with him. Jesus was a friend of sinners because he came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He taught this. He told parables to this end. One of his most famous parables, of course, is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son behaved in a way that was unbelievably offensive, unbelievably disrespectful, unbelievably sinful. And yet when he returned, the father ran to him to embrace him, demonstrating the extravagant, wonderful, 
grace of God. Jesus told this parable to impress upon us that he came to save sinful people, the worst of sinners. And because of that, sinners felt comfortable in his presence. He befriended sinners. Well, the idea that Jesus is a friend to sinners probably sits well with most people in our culture. This idea is certainly more popular than what we will consider next. Jesus was a judge. Jesus is a judge. An important thing we see in the life of Jesus is his role as judge. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, Jesus pronounced judgments on the people of the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We see in verse 20 that he pronounced judgment on the people of these cities because he had performed miraculous deeds there, but the people had failed to repent of their sins. Jesus revealed himself through the proclamation of the gospel of God and through his miraculous deeds, yet they failed to respond to his ministry by repenting of their sin and believing the gospel. In pronouncing judgment, he warned of the final judgment. And he warned of severe consequences for those who don't repent. Jesus was not hesitant or reluctant to speak about judgment. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 24 through 29, we read the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. And the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." Jesus warned of the coming judgment, calling sinners to repent so that we will enter his kingdom and escape the punishment we deserve. In speaking of the judgment, he graciously gives us the opportunity to respond to him, to receive him, to receive eternal life that we do not deserve. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we are glad that you are here. You're always welcome here. What we hope that you will come to know, understand, and believe is that God saves sinners like you and the rest of us in Jesus Christ. You see, God is our creator. He is the one who created all things, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And he created man, male and female, in his image to know him, to love him, to obey him, to enjoy him and glorify him. Yet every one of us has sinned against God. We have all rebelled against him. We have all gone our own way. And because of that, every one of us deserves judgment. Every single one of us deserves hell for all of eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
has provided a way for us to escape the punishment we deserve. And he did so by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He revealed himself as the Messiah, God's chosen king. And he called sinners like us to believe in him, to trust in him. He did not call us just to listen to his teaching, to admire him from afar. No, he called us to trust in him. And he promised that everyone who trusts in him will receive the gift of eternal life. He lived a life without sin. He died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve. After his death, he rose from the grave conquering death. And after appearing to many people, he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised that he will come again to render a final judgment. There will come a day when there will be a final judgment. And Jesus has said that there will be those who are raised to the resurrection of life and those who will face the resurrection of judgment. And those who believe in him will have eternal life and those who do not repent will face eternal judgment. So friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope, our desire, and our prayer for you is that you will believe in Jesus and be saved. Do not wait another day. Do not wait another day to put your faith in Christ, to believe in him and be saved. If you're not a Christian and the Lord is working in your heart right now to draw you to himself, please come and talk to any one of us. We would love to talk with you, to pray with you about putting your faith in Christ. Let today be the day of salvation. Well, in the life of Christ, we also see his humility. In Philippians 2, we see that Jesus humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He did not come to earth with a lot of pomp. He did not come with a a mighty army. He did not come in a blazing ball of glory. No, he came to earth in humility. He came to earth as a servant. And Jesus demonstrated his servant nature in a shocking way when he washed the feet of his disciples, which we read about in John chapter 13. Jesus humbled himself and literally took on the role of a servant with his disciples, got down and washed their dirty feet. Now this responsibility usually fell to the lowest ranking servant. The lowest ranking servant was the one who had the responsibility to wash the feet of guests And Jesus took that responsibility upon himself, humbling himself, demonstrating that he came as a servant. It was so surprising, it was so shocking when he did this that Peter at first refused. He said, no way, no way I'm going to let you do this. No way I'm going to let you wash my feet. It was so surprising and so shocking to see Jesus lower himself, humble himself to take this responsibility, to take this responsibility of the lowest servant. But Jesus had to explain to him that this is why he came. In taking on this responsibility of washing their feet, he was revealing something about his nature, about his work. Acting as a servant by washing their feet pointed to the reason for his coming. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. 
He came to give of himself for the sake of others. He came as a servant in order to save us. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, Jesus exhorted sinners to come to him. And in so doing, described himself as gentle and lowly. Jesus calls us to himself and describes himself as gentle and lowly. His gentleness, his lowliness, his humility means that we can come to him without fear. Even though he is the king of kings, the king of glory, the Messiah, the anointed one, he is approachable. We can approach him. We can draw near to him without fear. We can be certain that he will receive us with gentleness when we come to him, even when we come to him with all of our sin. He does not recoil when we come to him with our sin. He embraces us because that is who he is. That is his character. That is his nature. He is the one who came in humility as a servant, as the one who is gentle and lowly. Well, finally, it would be incomplete to talk about the life of Christ without talking about the fact that he lived a life without sin. We saw last week that he was born without a sinful nature. We see in Scripture that not only was he born without a sinful nature, he also lived a life without sin. The hymn from Philippians 2 makes reference to the obedience of Jesus. The obedience of Jesus throughout the entirety of his life is of utmost importance to us. Jesus in his human nature was tempted. We read about Satan's temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Jesus passed the test that Adam failed. Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, and he heeded the voice of Satan, disobeying the good commands of God. Where Adam failed and where we have all subsequently failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus successfully resisted the temptation of Satan. He did not give in to temptation. Where we have all given a temptation, he successfully resisted temptation. And that resisting of temptation, that obedience to the Lord, as I said, is of utmost importance to us. Scriptures teach, teach that Jesus was without sin. Nicholas Batzig summarizes, In a life that spanned three decades, our Lord never entertained a thought, never uttered a word, and never carried out an action that was defiled by impure motives. He always honored his Father in heaven, always honored his earthly father and mother, never lusted, never uttered a word in sinful anger, never gossiped about or slandered his neighbor. neighbor. He never stole, never lied, and never coveted. In short, he submitted to every commandment of the law of God without wavering. He loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. The scriptures bear manifold witness to this truth, and it is one of the most profitable truths upon which we ought to meditate. The Bible expressly declares that Jesus was sinless. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The apostle Paul boldly asserts that he knew no sin. At the announcement of his birth, the angel called him the Holy One who is to be born. Pilate's wife told her husband, have nothing to do with that just man. Pilate himself said, I find no fault in him. 
The dying thief acknowledged the innocence of Jesus when he said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion at the foot of the cross said, certainly, this was a righteous man. Even the demons recognized that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us. He did what we failed to do on our behalf, and thus he is able to give us the incredible gift of his righteousness. Next week, we will turn our attention to the death of Christ. His death upon the cross gets right to the heart of the gospel. In, Matthew, uh, uh, in Romans 5.8, we read the phrase, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe you've heard it said that that is the gospel in nine words. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it is also important for us to understand that he lived a life without sin for us. He resisted temptation for us. He obeyed for us. He fulfilled the law for us. Yes, Christ died for us, and we must proclaim that without end. We also rejoice in the fact that he lived a life without sin for us. Jesus Christ was the only one to live a life without sin. The life of Jesus is extraordinary. And as I said, we barely scratched the surface this morning. But what we do see is that he revealed himself to be the Messiah, God's chosen anointed king. He revealed the nature of the kingdom through word and deed. He called sinners to repent and believe in him so that we will enter his glorious kingdom. And as the king, he rightly demands our loyalty, allegiance, and devotion. And brothers and sisters, he is worthy. He is worthy of our loyalty our allegiance, our love, our devotion, our worship. He calls us to discipleship, to follow him. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He calls us to follow him wherever he leads. He calls us to trust him, whatever it might cost. He calls us to love him more than anyone or anything else in the world. He calls us to worship him. And he is worthy. And so, brothers and sisters, may we be true worshipers. May we be true worshipers of Jesus Christ. As he has revealed himself to us, not as we think he ought to be. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. And may we walk in obedience to him as disciples, adhering to his teaching, obeying what he has commanded, and following his example. May the life of Christ be on display in our lives together as his people, his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in you. We rejoice in Christ. We thank you and praise you for the precious life of Jesus. We thank you for what you have revealed to us in your word about Jesus. We pray that you will help us to believe. Help us to obey. Help us to trust. Help us to follow. Help us to worship, we pray. 
We pray that we will be people who are true worshipers of and followers of Jesus. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.